Okay, so look at that. We're actually going to break into Hebrews chapter 10 tonight. Um, and we've been talking about, well, we've talked about so many things. Uh, I kind of went back over the last couple of sessions on YouTube and watched them just to refresh my memory because it's been a couple of weeks. But usually we get off into, you know, we get off into tangents and those tangents are good. Um, the problem is sometimes it scrambles my thinking and I forget where I left off. So we've been talking about the priesthood of Christ. He is the last in the line of the Melchizedekian priesthood. So the priesthood of Melchizedek was the seed line through which the Messiah uh, was promised to come starting all the way back from Adam to Seth, so on and so forth. That seed line uh, moves forward. And in Christ, who comes as the eternal priest, he is the last in the succession of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And so uh, that all was, that all is the, the main point uh, the, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was merely a shadow, and, or as the term is expressed, a, a parable to teach us about the eternal tabernacle and the eternal priesthood and the eternal sacrifice of Christ. Uh, and so by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being perfected. Okay, so having said that, um, there's a lot of information there. Um, I if, you know, I want to encourage you to go back and look at all of the videos that are up on YouTube. They're there, uh, and because uh, there's a lot of stuff that we've talked about. Okay, so we're going to go right into the notes tonight, and I'm going to start with a quote by Charles Spurgeon, uh, who says, The rougher the voyage home, the more the mariners long for port, and heaven, be heaven becomes more and more a desired haven as our trials multiply. My horse invariably comes home in less time than he makes the journey out. He pulls the carriage with a hearty goodwill when his face is towards home. Should not I also both suffer and labor the more joyously because my way lies towards heaven and I am on pilgrimage to my father's house my soul's dear home and resting place. We see that reflected in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And then the believer's attitude is expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, We who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So we see there that, you know, you'll see in various places throughout the New Testament that this physical body that we have now is referred to as a tent, right? A temporary dwelling. This is not, this is not the place where this body is not the body that you and I are going to inhabit for eternity. It's corrupted. It's corrupted by sin. It must die. It must go into. It must go into the grave. So it's a temporary dwelling place. Okay, um, this is my thought here on point two. It seems to me that when we consider the issue of our going home, we spend a lot more time thinking about when that time will come than what that time will be like. Right. And so, 
So, uh, you know, I, I've had these conversations with my father over the years and, you know, um, sometimes the conversations would take place in Italian, sometimes in English, sometimes half and half, you know, but, but the idea is, is that that moment, it's, it's hard for us because we've been so steeped in Aristotelian philosophy almost from childhood, right? And so, so the, the prevailing culture's view is that death is the end of being. It's the end of, of, uh, of life, but it's not. It's merely a transition. The older generations understood that, right? And, and even cultures that are, are not Christian, are not modern ancient cultures, they understood that death was not the end of being, but merely a portal, right? A gateway that you pass through. And so, and so truth be known, a lot of us spend most of our time thinking about, well, what, what will, when is that time gonna come, right? When, <laughs> when am I gonna die, right? We've all had those thoughts. You have them more as you get older. That's just the way it goes. The body wears down and it starts to, you know, break down. And, you know, I was just telling Doug you know, before class that I've turned into a complete cream puff. You know, I worked line maintenance for an airline for over 40 years, and I would work outside in this weather in long johns, pants, and, a, and a, uh, an Arctic hoodie. Now it's like I'm wearing Arctic gear just to go from the house to the car, you know? These are things that you think about, but, but really what we ought to be thinking about, and I, I, I just, we wonder what will it be like when, when our eyes close here and they open uh, in, you know, in what's to come. So the reality is, and we, we, let's go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 2 just to recap this. We don't need to fear that hour or that time. And much of the world lives in that place. In Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14... Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, that's Christ himself, likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, <coughs> that is the devil. And how, and how does the devil use, how does he wield that power? How does he use it to his advantage? Well, that's expressed in verse 15 where it says, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so the devil, Satan, uses our, our fear of death to hold people in bondage. We've been freed from that. We don't have to fear death. For us, death is, is it is the heart, it brings us through to something far better. You know, I've said multiple times throughout this study that for the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. For the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets, right? And so we don't have to fear death. Now, that's easier said than done, right? But I think that God has a way of bringing you there, of bringing you to that point, because the reality is, you know, I saw, I saw my father go through it over the last two years. You know, even, even, you know, I've experienced some significant health issues over the last year, year and a half. And, and uh, you, you kind of, 
start thinking about, you know, um, I'm starting to feel ready to go home, you know, and I remember, at, you know, my father towards the end, I think I told you the story, you know, he had me get in the car one day and, and I said, where are we going? He says, I'm, I'm going to take you to the cemetery. I want to show you where I want, where I want to be buried. And so we were talking there and, uh, you know, I, again, that's where I kind of, you know, pressed him about the claims of Christ, you know, because uh, my father was Catholic all his life. And so if anyone is familiar with Catholicism, it involves the saints and Mary and all of that, you know, and I was just telling him about, you know, Christ is the only way. And, and I asked him, I, I said, Dad, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts? And he looked at me and he said, Carmen, Christ is my Lord and Savior. That's it, right? And so towards the end, I think the last time I spoke to my father, I, I took my mother to go see him, and he just looked at me and said, I'm ready. I'm ready. You know. And so I think, I think God brings us to that point right throughout our lives where he prepares us you know, for that moment when he's going to call us out of this world. And so, you know, while you fear death, I think, I think that providentially God, God prepares you for that time, for the time of, of, uh, of your departure. Okay, so back to the notes. We do not fear that day and hour and minute because of what Christ our high priest has done and continues to do for us. Going back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, we read, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So he has borne our sin. It's done away with in the registers of heaven, and we can and should eagerly await his return. That return for us does not involve fear of judgment, but of the death principle being swallowed up by immortality. And we can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where, where the Apostle Paul goes into a an extended discourse about the resurrection body. Okay. Those who are not in Christ instinctively fear that day, for they know that it will not be a good day for them. Just as they suppress all truth and unrighteousness, so too the the truth of his soon return. They deceive themselves into thinking that if they, can if they can deny it, they can somehow keep it from coming. But what are the obstacles in the believer's life that keep him or her from looking towards that day with eagerness? Well, so that's where we kind of kick back. Remember I said at the very beginning, there are five primary warnings that come in the book of Hebrews. Right, so these are the things that will will uh, will cause a will cause a person within the context here, because this this epistle was written to Jewish Messianic believers of the time, who are undergoing persecution. They were being ostracized from their from their families. Again, this is a concept that's foreign to us, but it's true of many many Jews who are. Uh, in the orthodox part of the orthodox movement today that if you were to embrace Christianity you would be completely cut off from your family uh, and so back then back at this time it was certainly true so when you are cut off we don't really understand the concept of community in the modern world because uh, you know there's 
because of the ability to travel distances and because of careers and things like that, there, there doesn't exist that cohesiveness of family and community that existed even in this country a couple of hundred years ago. You know, um, you know, I mentioned to you guys, I think a few weeks ago, that after I got saved, the first church I, I was a member of was, was, a, was a, a church that had been founded in 1735. And I was, you know, rooting around, the pastor resigned, and somehow it all ended up on my shoulders. You know, I'd only been a believer for about a year, and it all ended up on my shoulders, and I was rooting around in, in the back of the sanctuary, and I found this, this like old wooden seaman's chest in there, and I opened it up, and there was a deacon record there, a, a little a deacon ledger that dated all the way back to 17, 1735, the original ledger. And so I started reading the ledger, and I found a, an account in there where, where the church had voted to excommunicate a member from the church because they were carrying a load of fish to market on a Sunday, right? And so, well, so to us, it's like, yeah, so what, big deal. I'll just go to the church down the street. But you were essentially shunned in the community, right? And so in the community that this church was located, you would be completely shunned. You wouldn't be able, they wouldn't sell you feed, they wouldn't buy your products. None of those things would happen. So that's kind of like what these Messianic Jewish believers were up against. And so they were hesitant, they were being persecuted. But also remember I said that they were struggling with the concept of Jesus as the Messiah and his revelation carrying more weight than that of angels. Because according to even today, the prevalent Jewish thinking is that the Messiah will be completely human. So this was a big, so this was a big, a big struggle for them. And so there are five primary warnings. We've covered three so far. Just to recap them, uh, let's, let's uh, because it's been a while since we've done that, let's go back and look at them. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, where we read, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That, again, as I mentioned several times before, is really a nautical term. And so, you know, if you're, if you're into sailing or if you're into boating in any way, you know, you, you set your anchor, right? And if you're not paying attention, the anchor will drag and the boat will in, imperceptibly start drifting away. That's exactly what this term is referring to here. Verse 2 says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Now, mind you, these verses, these warnings are not talking about loss of salvation right because because we are saved by grace right god is the one who chose to save us and he, he he imparts to us the gifts of faith and repentance and so our salvation is based upon the work of christ 
This is not talking about judgment or loss of salvation, but what it's talking about is escape. You won't escape the chastisement of God. Right? So that's what, that's what this first warning is talking about. Okay, the second warning comes in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, which says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper uh, no, actually, I'm on the wrong. It's actually chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So there, there are some pretty significant things that are conveyed to us in here. First of all, that word departing there is the word that we know as the word apostasy, right? Everybody knows what the word apostasy means. It means to fall away. And uh, I, I think if we, if we are all are honest with ourselves, that and when we think back over the course of our life of faith, there have been times when we've done really well, but there are also have been times where we, I think the modern term is backslidden, right? Where we've slidden back so that's what this second warning is about beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in the part departing from the living God so very clearly God's word tells us that this is a very real potential for the believer that this can happen and it requires that we be diligent to spot you know the triggers to, to look at the red flags. So, you know, what are, what are some of the red flags that, without getting too personal, what are some of the red flags when, when, uh, that you see pop up in your life that indicate to you that there's something wrong with your relationship with Christ or you're starting to, to, uh, to go in, in the wrong direction? What, what are some of the precursors? I'll call them triggers, right? Things that start to fall off, things that start to, to, uh, to diminish in your life. Bible reading. What's another one? Prayer, Prayer right? Those are, the, those are the things that, you know, you know, if you're like me, hopefully you're not, when, when, you're, when you're doing something that you're not supposed to do and you know you're not supposed to do it, and you look at the at God's word, and God's word is just screaming conviction at you, and you kind of do this, right? You wanna, you wanna kind of just not look at it, and then, you know, eventually God just takes your face and slams slams it into His word, and you just finally have to relent, repent, and move away. So those are the things that start to, to, uh, you know, to fall by, to fall by the wayside. Another one is what, church attendance, all of those things, participation in a local. And, and so when I mean by church attendance, I don't mean just showing up for church on Sunday, right? We're called to be part of a faith community, right? And that faith community means that we are where we, we, um, we become part of other people's lives. Not that we meddle in their business, but we just, we become a, a close-knit community we help each other out. We encourage one another. We get to know each other to the degree was I can, you know, 
I can tell when something is bothering you. I can tell when something is, is not right in your life, right? It's not, it's not the once a week and then you're done, right? That's the community that we're called to be in. Those kinds of relationships start to slip, right? And so we have to watch out for that. Okay, so it says, But exhort one another daily, verse 13, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. What does that mean to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? Now, we're talking about things that potentially can happen to true believers. What do you think that's referring to? Yes. Okay, okay, yeah, you, you, you lose your sensitivity to things that you know are wrong, right? And so that's when the margins start to slip and they start to slide, you know, and they start to get wider. So this is a very real potential for those who are true, true children of God. Okay, so that was warning number two. And finally, warning number three is in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. Ah, this is the big one. So I'm going to spend a couple minutes on this because there's a lot here. I hope I make it to tonight's lesson, but <laughs> there's a lot here. So, so just to just to point. So here, if you remember, if you go back in the videos, you'll see it that the author here of the book of Hebrews is really wanting to break into this discourse about the priesthood of Melchizedek that we spent probably about five or six sessions on here. But he has to stop. He has to stop because they were not in a place where they were capable of understanding what he wanted to say to them about this priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, so that's kind of where he's at. And so it picks up, I'll pick it up in verse... Uh, 10, Hebrews chapter 5, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Okay, so now he comes in with the third warning, and it's a pretty strong rebuke. And uh, it, it's actually something that every believer needs to take to heart. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he's saying to them, you know, you guys have been you guys have been followers of Christ long enough now that you ought to be teachers in the word, but teachers of you ought to be teaching others about these things, but you're still in a state of spiritual infancy, right? And so he comes with them. So okay. So now he uses that that phrase there, the the first oracles of God or the basic principles of the faith. So here we're going to measure where the Church of Jesus Christ is today. Okay, 
So now what he's talking about here is he's going to talk about what are the basic principles of Christianity that one, ha one is assumed to have learned and still be in a state of spiritual immaturity. Let's go on and read. Therefore, leaving the elementary, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, these are the basic precepts. Christianity 101, hooked on phonics Christianity. This is what it is. Well, let's look at what those, what those principles are. Okay. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So right away, repentance and dead works. Okay, what is he talking about? What real repentance is and dead works, the, the works of the law. Okay. Of doctrines of baptisms, on laying on of hands, of resurrection of, of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So those are some pretty significant things there, right? The doctrine of resurrection, right? So, the, you know, the baptism, laying on of hands, eternal judgment. So I ask you to, I'm asking you now, when you take a look at modern Christianity, at the modern church in our country, how many people who are true believers can actually discourse adequately those basic principles? Not many. Not many. That's the reality. And the reality is it's not the fault of, of the, the, the believers in the pew. It's the fault of the people teaching them. That's the bottom line because they're not being properly taught. They're not being encouraged to keep going. And that's, that's the danger here, is there is no such thing as being static in the faith. You're either moving forward or you're sliding back. Now, there is something, now here comes the warning. The warning is, is that God will only tolerate one of his child slipping for so long and then there is something that he puts in motion in the life of that believer. So notice what he says there. And this we, verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. So what the author of Hebrews is saying there is that this can become so severe in the life of a believer that at a certain point, God will lock them into a state of spiritual immaturity. They will not be able to advance in maturity. Doesn't mean they lose heaven. They still get heaven. But there are, you know, the scriptures talk about rewards, right? We all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards. And so every believer, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, then he has given you a spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift is to be used to, to glorify him and to strengthen the body of Christ here on earth. And if we fail, it's our responsibility to develop, to find out what that gift is and then to develop it. And if we don't develop it, if we continue to trifle with the good the grace, that is essentially what the verses that follow say, is in doing that, the believer is actually trifling with the great price that God paid 
so that we so that we might have that relationship with him and that was the death of his son okay so the warning is if you push this too far God may lock you into a state of spiritual immaturity and you'll remain there for the remainder of your time on planet earth right and so what does that mean well the reality is the reality is is the more you become familiar with the scriptures the more you you know you you become um, um, consistent in prayer the more you walk in fellowship with un, with other believers the more your abiding sense of the presence of God in your life and that's the payoff this side of eternity right because I promise you I mean you guys are all fairly young right now except for you know me and me and Bill there but Bill will testify to the fact that there will there are days coming in your life where the only thing that gets you through the day is you're really you're really feeling the presence of God holding you up and keeping you moving forward am I lying or am I true those days are coming right and so and so now is the time you know while you have youth while you have vigor while you have energy uh, is to spend time deepening your relationship with Christ deepening your relationship with other believers there's nothing more important this side of eternity okay there I made it through the three warnings okay we still got two more to go before we finish the book remember I said two weeks ago that uh, I wanted to hurry up and finish the book and Pastor Roman came up to me and rebuked me on Sunday said, so I need to rebuke you on that you know okay rebuke received okay so anyway back to the notes we need to repent and starting getting those things right not with an attitude of terror but knowing that God is gracious and will abundantly supply the grace to change if we will but ask him it is through Christ who has borne the sins of many that makes this eventuality our going home to him that makes this possible by one offering he has borne our sins and made peace between us and God and this was accomplished part of his blood now uh, by his blood now the astounding part in all this is this is kind of a discussion that we began two weeks ago this was part of God's plan from before the foundation of the world right this was something and um, we'll get into it in a few minutes but uh, Pastor Roman made a comment last week that got me thinking and so I, I went and did a uh, a search in the New Testament and I looked at specific grammatical constructions in the Greek to see if what I was thinking was correct and it, it was so but we'll get there anyway the Levitical animal sacrifices were just a tool to point to the reality right just a shadow so here we go we're in Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect for then uh, for then would they not have ceased to be offered so if the Levitical offerings actually actually took care of the sins and remember we've said this several times and we actually looked at those passages in the Old Testament 
that the offerings were only for sins that were committed in ignorance. There were no offerings available for sins that were committed intentionally. And the offerings were not meant to deal with individual sins on the eternal plane. That is, they didn't, they didn't do anything to restore the eternal relationship with God, but they, made, they basically made it so the covenant relationship with the covenant people of God could remain in place. So they were, but they were there to point to the true sacrifice, to point to the true priesthood, to point to the true heavenly things. Okay. They would have, if they were, if they were in and of themselves sufficient to cleanse, to restore that relationship between the individual and God, then they would have only had to have been offered once, but they had to be offered continually. Moving on, for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay, so I broke down some of that terminology that's in those verses. So it says that the law was a shadow, that is a dim preview, not the very image. Kind of like when you are walking down the street on a sunny day, you know, there's you and then there's the shadow that your body casts. You can make out that it's a human being, but you can't make out much more, right? So that's kind of the comparison. So that Levitical priesthood was basically a shadow of the true priesthood. It, and, and that's kind of the, you know, the, the comparison. The, the crystal clear view comes with Christ. Okay. So perfect is complete. If so, the need for further sacrifice would have ceased. It would have cleansed even their consciousness, even their consciousness of sins. But the sacrifices were to stand as a reminder that sin was still an issue that needed to be dealt with. And thus the one who offered the sacrifice would look forward to the fulfillment of the coming of the one who would do away with sins forever. And here, in this is the faith concept in the Old Testament. Right? There it is. So, so they knew there, it, was, it, was, it was promised to them that one day one would come that would deal with the sin issue permanently and that those offerings were meant to just kind of bridge the gap so that the covenant relationship could be maintained but there was and and it was by faith that those who were you know those who were bringing these animals to be sacrificed it was their faith in the belief that a that blood offering would allow the covenant relationship with God with the people to stand and b that 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 one day God would send a lamb that would deal with the sin issue permanently forever so it was faith even at work back then yes so the levitical Yes. Yes. So, I mean, the Old Testament is full of it. You know, when you look at the Exodus account, when you look at Noah's Ark, it's all, 
it's all prophecy given under typology, right? Okay. All right. It was never a possibility that the blood of animals could take away sins. It was just a shadow. Christ's one for many offerings was always the plan. Now, this is interesting because now there's a quote here that, that uh, the quote that's in the, in the text here actually is a quote out of the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, Psalm 40. Okay, so let's just read that. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you, have, you had no pleasure. Then, he, then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Now I thought about that for a moment and I said, okay, when did Christ utter these words? Because they're not recorded in the New Testament anywhere. You don't see them quoted in the Gospels as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware of. So when did he utter these words? Behold, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Right? When, when did he utter these words? So, so either this is the missing quotation that is inserted here in the text, or actually Christ uttered these words prior to his incarnation. Right? So I'm not sure, but it gives us something to think about. So, uh, so this is where we kind of now get into, you know, the, uh, the observation that Pastor Roman made last two weeks ago. Okay. So when was Christ crucified? Can anyone give me a rough date? Well, don't jump there yet. Can anyone give me a rough date? Was it 33? I thought it was around 28 or 29 A.D. Okay, so that is somewhere around there, I think 28 or 29, because Christ was born approximately 2 or 3 B.C. So anyway, anyway, he was crucified, let's say, in a range from 28 to 33 A.D. Okay, so we know it happened, but look at what it says in the book of Revelation. Verse 13.8. Now, this is jumping forward to the time of the tribulation, those who will take the mark of the beast. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the what? In the book of life of the lamb slain when? From the foundation of the world. Okay, so I started looking at this. I said, okay, wait a minute now. So how can both things be true? How can they both be true, or is this just a, a metaphor here? So that's what I was thinking. Maybe this slain from before the foundation of the world was just some sort of colloquialism or a metaphor. So I actually went and looked up 
all of the verses in which this construction is used. Let me see if I can pull out my notes. And I found that this construction is used in, um, in Matthew, let's just look at the Matthew chapter 13, verse 35. From the foundation, so uh, Doug, you're familiar with the Greek. So the the construction is the preposition apo, which is used with a genitive, right? But it's all it's preceded by a, a per perfect passive participle. So the participle, remember the part. So remember the the time frame of the participle is always calibrated by by the tense of the main verb okay yes okay so Matthew 13 35 says at that time it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying I will open my mouth in parables I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world exact same construction uh, grammatical construction as Revelations chapter 13 8 Matthew 25, 34. Now this is talking about the judgment of nations. And, and in Matthew 25, 34, we read, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Same construction, exactly. Same use of the perfect passive participle with the preposition and the object of the preposition being before the foundation of the world. Okay, uh, next one, Luke chapter 11, verse 50. running out of time may have to come back to this next week okay and I'll start in 40 verse 46 just to give some context in Luke chapter 11 and he said woe to you also lawyers for you load men with burdens hard to bear and you and and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them in fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. See, there's a very, these, these, there is no way to take this construction and and interpret it in anything other than a literal way. Right? Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, one more. Let's look at Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. Now this is the destruction of the uh, the woman that rides the beast 
and its meaning. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast that was and is not. So there is a book that was written from before the foundation of the world that all those who are appointed to life, their names have been written into it. So here is my question. How can both things be true? You, there is no way, there's no way to interpret that phrase, lamb having been slain from before the foundation of the world, metaphorically. Grammatically, it stands, it must be interpreted and understood literally. So how can both be true? That the lamb, Christ the Messiah, both references are to Christ, right? So the, the lamb having been slain from before the foundation of the world is actually Christ having been slain from before the foundation of the world. How can that be true? At the same time, we know historically that Christ was crucified within the time frame of 28 to 33 A.D. Okay. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Okay. So now remember, let's bring this back into the context of what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews, that Christ also with his blood had to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle, right? So remember that, you know, chapters 8 and 9 talked about this heavenly tabernacle, right? That needed to be cleansed because it was corrupted by Satan's rebellion. He was, a, he was one of the covering cherub, right? And so he corrupted the heavenly tabernacle, and so Christ had to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle with his blood, which means... As you said, and as you said, in, in that moment, and we looked at it, we looked at how quickly it took place in the gospel account, that he stepped out of time and into eternity and cleansed that temple, right? And so the difficulty that we have is understanding the concept of eternity, right? And we, we discussed the fact that time, it's been scientifically proven now, is not constant, right? And, and what is time after all? Time is a measurement of physical decay, the law of entropy, right? That's what time is. So, yeah, that's, yeah. What? Yeah, but that's what time is. It is, a, it is a measurement of decay. But in the perfect realm, there is no decay, right? So just to give you some things to think about, why should I be the only one with a headache over these things, right? So, so think about that. And now when you start thinking about, when you start thinking in that way, now you start thinking about what we read in Revelation chapter 17, the Lamb's Book of Life written from before the foundation of the world. Now you start to understand that that. The, the finality of these things, 
And now, you know, where we read earlier in the book of Hebrews, where there was that whole passage there about the Sabbath of God, right? That all his works were finished after the sixth day of creation, right? And so, so you start to take things now and start to think about them in a different way. That point of fact is the salvation of all those who will be saved was accomplished before the foundation of the world. That's how fixed and how sure it was and how it is. It was a done deal. And you, you know, you, you, go ahead, you, you go read in the book of Ephesians and in a million, not a million, but a lot of different places where it is very clear that the grace that God has determined to bestow upon you, he determined to bestow that upon you before even his first act of creation, before the foundation of the world. Yeah, it's hard to fathom because we are locked in time and space, but that is the clear, consistent testimony of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Yes. Yep. Okay. Anyway, so we did that. All right. If it's okay with you guys, I think I'm going to stop there. All right. And then I will, I will introduce and give you the section for the next notes next week because I'm kind of spent. So any questions? I know it's a lot to handle, right? That's why I want to encourage you to go back, especially now as a result of this discourse, we, we have to wrestle with this, right? We got to wrestle on how this, there, this thing fits together, this interface between eternity and time. We, we have to wrestle with that. You know, we can't, we can't just, there's a reason why God disclosed this, this to us in his word. You know, I'm like, what is this you know why you know why is this there you know from the foundation of the world and I said well if there's a real message here that God wants us to see then the construction is going to be similar across the board and that's what you find you find the exact same grammatical construction across the board so God is saying pay attention to this there's something I want you to see here yes How could that be? Yeah, I, I know it does, you know, and, and it gets even more complicated than that. Turn to Revelations chapter 5. But I really think that God wants us to wrestle with these things. Because if not, then why did he put them in his word? Revelations chapter 5. So look at what it says in um, verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, 
having seven horns. So here is a lamb. That, now here is, the, here is a picture of a lamb that had been slain, notice past tense, but now is alive. And you're in the heavenly realm. Right? And so when does this take place? See, we tend to think of it sequentially because we, are, we're in a, we live in a sequential plane, right? Time and space. That's why all the video games start from A and go to, to the finish line, right? But, but we're dealing here with a realm that is outside of time. So when you, when you study the overview, when you look at the construction of the book of Revelation, you see that what's actually taking place in Revelation exists outside of time. And then as the, the successive seal scrolls are unloosed, the effects take place in time, right? But it's something that starts outside of time and then moves into time. So it gets really complicated, and I think God wants us to struggle with these things. And I shouldn't be the only one getting headaches over these things. So Why? Because that's our frame of reference, right? And so, anyway, so it gets complicated. And, you know, I know that a lot of times some of the things that I say seem far out. But stop and think about it and wrestle with them and search the scriptures for yourself. There is a reason why we have these hints in the scripture. God wants us to... There's something that God wants to disclose to us in the Holy Scriptures by these, you know, obscure references that we have a tendency to just blow over them in our reading and not stop and consider the ramifications. Just that one ramification, the lamb having been slain from before the foundation of the world. How can the two be how can the two be true? There's no way to interpret that phrase in the original language any, in any way other than literally. So how can the two be true? And that's where the struggle begins, right? Then you start searching the scriptures and, and you find a little bit here, a little bit there, and you start to put the pieces together.